Well, good morning, my beloved church family. How was your week? Everybody's going, don't ask. <laughs> We're here. That's all that matters. And what a joy it is to be here together to sing that God never fails. I trust the Lord. Did you sing that with a little extra fervor this morning? I sure did because he's never failed me. And sometimes, sometimes I have to admit, I wonder where God is. Sometimes. But all of a sudden, when I least expect it, he shows up in my life and I go, you were always there, weren't you? And the truth is... God is always there. He is working in behind the scene. He is working on your behalf. And he's working to see you uh, healthy, uh, serving well, and growing in your walk with Jesus. And a part of that is being in his word regularly. And we're in the word today. As you saw again, we're back in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And we're going to finish up what really is the opening. How many people here get handwritten letters? Still get them. Anybody? Look at that. I see one hand. Just one hand. How many of you write handwritten letters? There's the thing. Some of you do. I know that you do. I've received some of your little letters, and they're wonderful. They're encouraging. But the reality is letter writing is gone almost. You know? We have email now. Don't you love email? Not really. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you for your honesty. Not really. Um, and, and even worse, when you get a long email, do you get disgruntled like I'd, I, I shouldn't say this, but when there are more than one paragraph that sort of fits in the opening area that you see it, when you see and you start to scroll, there's two paragraphs, three, oh my goodness, you go, what is this all about? And it could be wonderful stuff, but... Letter writing, it's changed, hasn't it? But I'm so thankful for this letter uh, to the region uh, of Asia Minor, that area that we know of as Turkey today. It was written to these group of churches who would then be representative of churches for the next two millennia plus, including us here today. It, it includes... Uh, uh, Thoughts of, of encouragement. It includes thoughts of warning. You see how uh, that introductory video is a little dark, isn't it? A little scary. The, at least the one last week, which was longer. It's like you're sitting back in your chair going, what are we getting into this morning? But it's got, it's got warnings. It's got encouragements. It, it has truth that the church needs to hear. Remember last week as we started... We looked at verses 1 to 3. We realized that the letter was written uh, from God through Jesus, communicated by an angel. We think it might be Gabriel. We don't know. He's the bringer of good news and, and, and the news of God. To the beloved apostle John, that man who was uh, put out on this island called Patmos, and he lived till he was in his late 90s. Some think he was even around 99 when he went to be with the Lord. But he had lived a long life. And uh, he took this message that he actually saw, that the Lord allowed him to see this grand vision of the days to come. And he passed it on to us. So look in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles again if you're not there. Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 4 and uh, verse uh, 4 to 8. This morning it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia... 
grace and peace to you. I just wanted to stop there. Isn't that a wonderful way to start? Grace and peace. Think about it. Peace always comes after you've received grace. Think about that for a second. Grace always follows, or maybe we could call it, peace is the byproduct of grace. Think about that. What, what is grace? We've used the terms uh, undeserved. Uh, we've, in our times of uh, study before, we've used the word, a phrase, unmerited favor of God. That's what grace is. Getting something that we do not deserve. And that is, that comes out of his grace. The truth of the matter is, God isn't in glory weighing out the good and bad in our lives. God has told us very clearly through his apostle Paul, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's a given. We understand. There is no human being who has ever been born except when Adam and Eve were first created. They were without sin, but then they sin. And from that moment on, sin is a part of the human life, the human experience. The unmerited favor of God is his love towards us that in yet, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. So, a couple thoughts. Peace is the product of grace. I, I resonate with the... Um, the words of Peter, his exhortation to the followers of Christ, where he said in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Interesting phrase. And he's saying uh, the area of your spiritual growth should first and foremost be in your understanding of what God has done for you. Christian, we must never, ever let the grace of God become a well. You know, it's, it's a good thing. I've experienced it. Whatever, move on. Grace of God, every day we should explode with joy. We should, we should reverberate with praise for what God has done for us. And the fact that that grace gives us a second thought. Out of that grace, we have the absolute possibility of experiencing his peace Comfort, joy, no matter what life is throwing at you, you can experience that. It is yours to possess. Someone has said, God's grace is immeasurable. His mercy in, is inexhaustible. And his peace is inexpressible. I want you to just stop there, read that again. Look at that. Thank God for his grace, his mercy, and his peace in your life. Think about this morning, because John made a, is causing us to think, who's the source of this wonderful grace, this peace? And it says in verses 4 and following, it says that this grace and peace is from. Who is this from? As, as a matter of fact, he uses that preposition 
three times in the next couple of verses. So let's consider the source of this marvelous grace and peace. The first is grace and peace comes from the one who created time, yet exists outside of time. He's the eternal one. Verse 4. This designation of our marvelous God is complemented in verse 19. Just look up just a little bit forward. Look at verse 19 where it says, uh, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. So that you've seen now, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Really that verse 19 is the division of of the whole book telling us what, how it's going to sort of play out in the, in the verses to come. But here back in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, we're, we're looking at uh, verse, what verse 19 says, but it's directly relating to the author, to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it's talking about the past, maybe over here, the past, the present, and the future. And it's talking about the fact that our Creator, God, is the God of history. I remember one of the first things I learned when I went to Bible college was uh, this little definition of what history is. You know it, don't you? History is his story. It's God's story. From beginning to end, history isn't about what we're doing, it's about what he's doing. And we need to keep that in mind each and every day. And he talks about Uh, The Father who is. Uh, That is a present reality. But then he says, who was. And he lifts up this uh, distinctive, this uh, as an emphatic quality of God's being in essence. He was, and and then it says, who is to come. Uh, But when I think of who was, I think of in the Old Testament where he says, when they said, give uh, give us your name, he says, I am. Now, if we said that today, people would look at us funny, but that was an understood that God the Father always was, always is, and always will be the same. And because of that, today, we can trust him, can't we? We can trust him. Just like the song said, we can trust him. So John here is directed to remind the church of who God was, is, is to come. But also, he's saying, what's, who's coming is Jesus. Jesus is coming. And we need to live in light of the return of Jesus. We talked about that la- last week. But I wanted to bring to your attention uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. Can you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15? Uh, we've got a lot of scripture this morning. These are all we... All important scriptures for us to read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 28 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Christ in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming. Jesus is coming. No, never slip over that. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. And God may be all in all. We could spend weeks just unpacking that whole passage of Scripture. But notice two things. One, that it's because Jesus was resurrected, we will be resurrected. But don't forget that he's coming again to bring to fruition the work of the power of his resurrection. The God who was, who is, and who is to come. And so we're looking at his marvelous grace. Let's just keep, keep tracking here well, looking at his marvelous grace and peace. And it can be yours. It can be yours. Grace and peace, secondly, come from the seven spirit. A little bit of a puzzle as people read this. Who is that speaking of? I mean, later on we're going to see, uh, talk about the seven spirit. By the way, the number 50 in the scriptures in general uh, is a, a, a tremendous number. It is the most, uh, pardon me, the number seven uh, comes up all through the scripture. It comes up at least 50 times. Uh, most, most popular number. When we look at the number seven, we see it as the perfect number. That's why I always wore the number seven when I played any sports. And I, I was not a good representation of the number. I did my best. I did my best. But, you know, as you go through, uh, read the rest of Revelation, you'll see uh, seven churches, spirits, lampstands, stars, seals, horns, uh, the eyes of the lamb, seven angels, trumpets, thunders. Uh, there's a dragon even in the scriptures. We see that. Golden bowls, kings. Number seven is important. And we know that there's a lot of symbolism in the book. So keep that in the back of your mind as you read not only the first three chapters about the seven churches, but as you read all 22 chapters. And what the seven spirits is really, uh, in, in a nutshell, is talking about is the spirit of God. Here we have who was, is, and is to come. And it, as a message from the Father, the seven spirits is talking about the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And it's his message to us. We need to remember that uh, I think this is probably... Uh, from all the commentators you will read, the best representation of what this means. That his uh, perfection is seen in the fullness of all his actions and all his work in, in the nature and the life of us as human beings. Again, looking at the source of the marvelous grace of God from the Father, from the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, grace and peace come from Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Savior. That's where grace and peace, really, it, it is most noticeably flowing from Jesus Christ. It's his work that he's done. It is who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he will do. And we see in the next verse or so, 
there are three titles given to this one, Jesus, whom grace flows out of. The first title is Jesus is the faithful witness, the prophet. Literally, that reads in the original, original language, the witness, the faithful one. That's who Jesus is. He is the great prophet that had been um, spoken of, that was coming, that would, uh, would bring a message of grace and peace, which he did. He is perfectly faithful. We know from Jesus' life uh, and the word of God that he is the logos, the word, the very revelation of God's uh, heart and love for us to mankind. You'll never forget John 1 and John 1, uh, verse 1, verse 14, verse 18, which reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, down in verse 14, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then down to verse 18, and no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus is the one, the prophet, the true and faithful witness of the grace of God. As a living, breathing word of God, he answers every man's need. And today, I know each one of us has a need. Now, from a human perspective, some of our needs may seem greater than some other needs. But I can promise you this. Whatever your need is, God can meet it. You don't have to question. You need to surrender to whatever God is calling you to do. And he will give you the strength you need to get through and beyond that need. So Jesus is the ideal prophet. He's the spokesperson, uh, spokesman. And he is the very real revelation from and for our God. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet uh, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Let us listen to the prophet, Jesus, the very Logos, the very word of God. There's a second title, though, that is given to Jesus here. It's in the middle of verse 5. It says, Jesus is our priest, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, one aspect of this is, in order to be firstborn from among the dead, we have to look back to the nature of Christ's death. And I want to just lay it on the line for you right now. Christ's death was a substitutionary death. He took our place because of our sin. He took our place and he paid the price for our sin. Let me read for you Hebrews 9. We're in Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he ent entered once and for all. I love that phrase. Never again to be repeated. Once and for all, he entered into the holy place, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, which was the situation. Those were representative of our sins being put on an altar. He just, that's not the case anymore. But by means of his own blood, uh, Jesus' blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, blemish to God, purifying our conscience from the dead work to serve the living God. Jesus is our priest and he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the priest who took our place and he went to the cross, took our place and paid the price for our sin. Second, to the firstborn of the dead, it's also really an obvious reference to the fact of the resurrection. Firstborn from the dead, so this is the resurrection of Jesus. And with that resurrection, it was a perfect verification of the acceptance of Christ's work at Calvary. We don't have to wonder, was Jesus' work on the cross to take our place? Did God accept it? We don't have to question that. God raised him from the dead. The acceptance is proof. Proof of our justification. Proof to the world that he is the son of God. And proof that Jesus will one day judge the world righteously as the one who gave his life. The third thing is the mention of the firstborn points to him as our forerunner in our resurrection. If, if, if Jesus had not been resurrected from the dead, how would we have any confidence in our own life when this life is over? We close our eyes here that we one day would be resurrected to new life. Jesus said it so well. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever, here's the caveat. And maybe this morning you're trying to find out who Jesus is to you. Here's the caveat. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That's exciting. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Yeah, this shell will die. But we are spiritual beings. We are spirits. And Christ said, you believe in me? Which means a wholehearted, surrendered life, trusting in him, what he did at Calvary. If you believe in what I did for you, you will never die. You will be resurrected. You will live forever. Can I get an amen? Isn't that true? Isn't that exciting to think of? And with that... John, I, I can only imagine him writing out as much as he could or having the spirit of the sword. What was that? The, I saw there, the spirit of God, writing it out. And, and what does it lead him to? What should it lead us to? It, leads, it led Paul to a moment of pure, unabashed praise. He, he, gives, he gives a second thing that he sees in verse 5. The last part, he talks about he, he, he offers praise. Let me just get there. He offers praise. And from Jesus Christ, his faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the king's honor, 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. And, and he goes and made us priests and all that. Uh, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We could just sing that. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. But we cannot pass over this, all of this that's causing him to praise God. We cannot pass over the fact that he's, he mentions that there's freedom in Christ. To him who loves us and has freed us. This is so important. And it's in the past tense. If you have trusted Christ, you have been made free. Forever. Freed. Jesus Christ, I had to write this. I, I have to read this because I want to make sure I got it right. I, I said it several times and it's become a tongue twister to me. You got me? I got your attention now? Jesus Christ is the surrendered sinner's freedom bringer. Surrendered sinner's freedom bringer. We're all sinners. We've learned that. But to enjoy the freedom of Christ, we must be surrendered sinners. Surrendered to his plan for our life. Surrendered to the fact that because we're sinners, we needed Christ's work at Calvary. And with being surrendered sinners, we are free. We are free. All of you who know, know John 3.16, just put it through your mind. For God so loved the world that he came to be, to be with us to be a freedom bringer. Freedom is crucial because man, all of us, men and women, boys and girls, apart from Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, are in bondage. We are chained to the sin problem both to its penalty, which is eternal separation from God, and to its power, where if we are under the power of sin, we are weak, frail, useless human beings for the glory of God. And that freedom is being freed from. Uh, and that preposition is out of. Uh, it is away from. It's a preposition of separation and the critical thing to know about freedom uh, is that before Christ freed us, freed us, we were in bondage. We were chained. The vast majority of the world doesn't have a clue as they walk around. They're dragging this spiritual ball that is keeping them from a relationship from God. It's heavy. It is binding. It is restrictive. But when John says that Jesus is our freedom bringer, he is saying he's freeing us from our sins, stressing a couple of things. One is, is sin is imputed to us. We, we have it because Adam sinned, and it, it, it's in our genetic makeup. And you know even the most pure baby that comes into the world doesn't take long before that little sweet thing shows the nature. I, I say that thinking about my children, my grandchildren go, oh, just love them. They're so sweet. But I know, I know. They have their moments of disobedience, and we do too. Let's not forget, we grow up not as little sinners, big sinners. And Jesus is the freedom bringer. The, 
It's not the world we live in that's the problem. It's our hearts. Our nature is to do everything we can to do what we want, not what God wants. And so that's the first problem. The second is, uh, it, it's, it's a personal problem. And every person is up against the eight ball of sin and needs the saving grace of God. For all have sinned. And it says here in verse 5 in Revelation chapter 1 that we are freed from sin by his blood. That's another way. It's just a way of God uh, telling us, think of the cross. That's where Jesus' blood was shed. It is a, a reminder to think of the substitutionary death of Jesus as he was on that cross. Let's never forget. Let's never let it become again whatever. The substitutionary death has changed our eternity if we will be surrendered sinners. Someone has said Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we like. It means being free to do as we ought. Not to do what we like, but to do what we ought. What we ought to do is what John is doing here. Speaking of the glory of the grace of God, reminding us that grace brings peace, but that all came at a price. The price is Christ, God himself becoming human being. Fully God, fully man, dying on the cross in our place. Then he also talks about and he has made us a kingdom. Verse 6. He's made us a kingdom. Those of us who have been made free because we've surrendered our life, we've put our faith and trust in Christ, we have become a kingdom. And notice, in this point, we see that it's singular. But we've been made what? A kingdom of priests. First of all, let's not forget that we as the church of Christ here in this community called the bridge are a kingdom amongst all the churches globally that are worshiping all believers globally and it's not like we are a bunch of kingdoms we are not kingdom builders for our own sake here we are a part of a singular kingdom the kingdom of God but what gets even more exciting is that he says we're a kingdom of priests which is plural watching a show on TV and the, the character says details are important and this detail is hugely important this detail of plurality that I'm about to talk about is heavy-duty theology and you're gonna step up your game today maybe a little bit maybe you already are there it's important theology and the theology is called the priesthood of all believers did you know Today, each one of us sitting here who are surrendered sinners and enjoying the grace of God and his peace are priests. Now you look up because at me and, and, and you go, oh, I thought you were the priest and we were the lay people. Have you ever heard that term, lay people? I don't like that term at all. Don't like it. As a matter of fact, my family who are of another denominational um, stripe have within that stripe, priests and lay people. The priests do the work of God. 
the lay people follow the priests who are doing the work of God. And I want to let you know this morning, you are a priest, I'm a priest, and together we do the work of God. We're all gifted, yes, differently, and that's exciting because I have uh, some gifts and you have some gifts that I think are pretty cool, but I don't have, and I'm glad you do. And maybe you're saying, Pastor, I'm glad you're gifted in the area of communication and God's word, because I don't want to be standing on that platform ever. And it's okay, because God has made us all. We know, as Paul talks about, some are hands, some are legs, some are hearts, some are head. He knows that the, the body of Christ is like a body. Each has its role. But I want you to know today that what we're hearing here is that we're all equal and we're all called into service as priests. And what a joyful role to have. To go out to the world representing our Heavenly Father as His priests, with Jesus being our high priest. Jesus leading us in the ministry of... It's not like... There's some priests in the Old Testament, they, they were the priests who sacrificed the animals and prayed over the nation of Israel. We are all here. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, and we serve under Jesus, our great high priest. And with that, he says, to God, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 6. To him, Jesus he is the one, only one, the Father, the Holy Spirit, who rightfully deserve our praise, our ador adoration. He's the only one who should be showered upon with glory. To be spoken of as the one who has dominion, that is rule, justice, power, and might. And yes, forever and ever may God be praised for all that he's done. The offering, the final word of praise that is offered is around his future ministry. It says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. That word behold in the original language was an emphatic word. It says, basically, stop whatever you're doing. Look, concentrate, focus, behold, Jesus, he's coming for us. And another Lengthy scripture, but I thought we should read it. It's in Revelation, uh, pardon me, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. A, a, a whole passage really about the coming of the Lord. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will first rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Isn't that exciting? We praise the Lord 
uh, for the future ministry of Christ, which is to come. And if we are not with him yet, to take him to be with us. His coming is imminent. The language throughout all of the scriptures around this, the second coming of Christ is that it is imminent. He is coming with the clouds. And this makes me think of the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, it was the Shekinah glory clouds that surrounded the Ark of the Covenant and the temple. And people knew that that was the presence of God. When Jesus come back, comes back, he will come back with clouds. I don't doubt that that would be the same Shekinah glory that was expressed and observed in the Old Testament. And it says, every eye will see him. Now, we know that when Jesus takes his church, only the church will see him. But when he comes back to turn things around where he will come and physically rule on this earth, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. How could that be? Because that was a long time ago. I think what that is just telling us, we're all guilty. Yeah, the Romans put him on the cross, but the Jews wanted him crucified. But the reality is, every one of us wanted him crucified because he reminded us that we are lost, we're with, we're with sin, and we're separated from God. So the world around will look, and they will see him coming, and they will, they will mourn at what was done to him, and they will mourn at the fact that they have not surrendered their lives. And there will be wailing on all tribes of the earth. Verse 7. Will wail on account of him. Literally to beat one's breast in, in mourning, in, in pain. A mourning of repentance and a mourning of the coming judgment. So John brings this wonderful opening conclusion uh, uh, opening uh, introduction to conclusion. Verses 1 through 8 is that opening. Uh, and theologically, we've seen already, wow, if this is what the opening few verses is all about, what is to come? And he brings his opening remarks and greeting with a conclusion, even so, amen. You know what amen means? We say it often, don't we? I asked you to... Can you say amen to that? What does it mean? Say again. Let me hear what you... So be it. Yes. So be it. It means truly. Yes, I verify with you that this is right. Amen. And what does he say as he said, so verily, truly, I believe this is right. He said uh, that the Lord said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The, the alphabet is alpha, and the last in the Greek language is omega. Uh, uh, and we see God saying, I am, I was, I am, and I will be always. I am the alpha and the omega. The almighty. The one who is all powerful. All of this in an introduction. Now, I think if we go back to the introduction about emails being the new form of sending a letter, I'm not sure we would always like to have an email started with a big, huge introduction like this. We might want to say, get to the, the point, but we don't want that here. We want to hear 
what God has to say about himself, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and John delivers it in technicolor. And with that, I give you two questions, two questions that I want you to think personally about these questions. One is, am I involved in ministry as a believer priest, or am I a spectator? I think this is a natural application that comes out of this. Am I in the ministry knowing I am a priest or am I sitting as a spectator on the benches? So they ask the question, what am I doing to build God's kingdom as one of his priests? Something for you to think about this afternoon, to pray over. And if you're, if you're actively involved, blessings. Uh, but if you're not, you're missing a blessing because it is a blessing to serve. Secondly, finally, am I living as just one who sort of goes through life, uh, maybe looks with a certain level of anticipation for the Lord's return? Or am I just going through life uh, being one who lives on the earth, the earth, who I have goals, but they're not heavenly? They're just, those goals are just right here in front of me. Maybe to make more money, maybe to have a bigger house, nicer car. And maybe even if it isn't that, there's not a lot of thought about eternity. Maybe it's just simply going through the mundane, monotony of existence. It's easy to get into that rut. But when you are a priest in God's kingdom, there's no ruts to be had. It's exciting. And so I offer you this. This church family is your church family. You are loved. You belong here. And if you're not serving, and if you are serving, just dig in. Be a part of what God is doing right here. And let that flow out into your homes and your work and wherever you play, whatever you do for fun. And may you not just live life casually, but live it intensively and with purpose as priests in his kingdom. And I promise you that grace and peace will just multiply in your life. You will see it, feel it, and know it more than you ever have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and, and the richness of it. Our, our, our prayer today is that you would help us recognize that we are part of your kingdom here in, in this Durham region, that you've called us as priests to engage in ministry of love and care for others, of helping some people up and helping others to use their gifts and talents for your glory. And Lord, I pray today that each one of us will have been encouraged to do just that. And for all those that are here who have not yet surrendered their lives, that are not yet surrendered sinners, I pray for today that you would touch their hearts and help them to do just that. And may you be glorified, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.